2, beginning in verse 13 that that Bill read to us for uh, just a couple of minutes ago. Uh, One of the the, the struggles when uh, you have the opportunity to, to preach through a gospel is that especially a gospel the size of Matthew, 28 chapters, there's, uh, there is uh, a lot more material that you, you see you want to speak about, that you want to preach on, than you really have in 13 weeks. And so uh, th- there's going to be the, the normal sermon series of, uh, uh, on the Gospel of Matthew for the Insight Series on Sunday morning, but on Sunday nights from time to time we're going to have some supplemental uh, information or some, some messages on, on Matthew. And tonight is just that case. Uh, it occurred to me as I was looking at the second chapter uh, and getting ready for the message this morning that there are several things that I have never touched on in a message that were very interesting to me and, and really uh, kind of convicting and, and, and moving emotionally for me this past week and thought that, uh, that I would, would share some of these things tonight. And, but before we do so, let's, let's make sure that we ask God to bless us in this study and that He guide us through His Word and, and bless us with wisdom and with insight into it that we may be better stewards of it as well as greater and deeper disciples. Father, we are in Your presence, thankful for Your Spirit, gladdened by this, this worship, but more than anything else, hungry and eager to, to understand Your Word more deeply. And in so doing, to, to find our, our, our images uh, um, of, of Jesus, our ideas, our... Uh, our thoughts about Him, not only to be shaped by Scripture, but for those images to become much more colorful and much more profound and significant in the way that we think about Jesus and the way that He lived His life, the way that He spoke, His teaching, what He represented, what He was doing, His mission, and all of that become a part of our own way of living and being and thinking and speaking and acting in this community. And so what we ask, Father, is for you to be a part of this study by giving us eyes that see and ears that hear. And we ask, Father, to be, to be moved by these ancient words. And we ask it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, this, the end of last week, um, uh, my mother needed to go out of town, so uh, the last two and a half days or so I've been up in Fredericksburg uh, spending uh, that time with my father while she's been up in the Metroplex um, uh, taking care of some business up there. And uh, one of the things that, uh, that I get to do when I'm with my father is, uh, and especially because uh, uh, it was just pouring down rain and it never got out of the 30s out there in the country where they live, I built a big fire and uh, we just sat and talked. But then in the evening, I guess we, he got tired of talking to me, and, uh, which I guess fathers are prone to do sometimes, you know, and, uh, and, and we watched television. And uh, what he and mom watch is a lot different from what uh, Ellen and I, what little we do watch. And I got to see some shows that I had never seen before, probably will never watch ever again. But on one of these shows, uh, there was, um, it, it was kind of a, a news type show. I, can't even, I don't even know the name of it. But uh, the, the, the big question was, um, they approached Larry King and asked him, who would you rather interview, Jesus or Judas? Who would be the greater interview? And it was uh, it was uh, uh, it was interesting to watch the you know the debate that went on among that crew inside of the studio in answering the question themselves who would be the greater interview, and for the most part they all said Jesus. But the reason for that was a little uh, unsatisfying. 
why they thought that uh, talking to Jesus would be a little bit more interesting rather than Judas. You know, the last couple of Sunday mornings, we've been thinking about the Incarnation. We've been thinking about the meaning of the word Emmanuel this morning. And one of the things that, that Matthew is trying to get across to us is that Jesus is, is the Christ, and in being the Christ, He is God become man. The Creator has become a creature. He is identifying completely with us by being a part of our human existence. And one of the reasons that this incarnation and the study of Matthew is really important is because Jesus is the, uh, the, the most important, the greatest man who ever lived, the greatest personality who ever lived. And, but at the same time, He is the most inspiring person you can ever read about. You know, when we talk about the reasons that Matthew wrote his gospel, most of the time we say, you know, uh, there's, there's all these references to Old Testament Scripture. And from time to time as you're reading through those chapters, through those verses, you've come across, uh, and it was, it was done to fulfill Scripture, meaning the Old Testament Scripture. And, you know, and it's, it, it is an absolute truth that I believe with all of my heart that one of the reasons that Matthew is writing this gospel is, is for Jewish people who were struggling with their ideas and concepts of the Messiah to really come to grips with Jesus' identity. But if we leave it at that right there, it's just a proof and nothing more, then we're the ones that really become impoverished in our understanding of Jesus. Uh, those, those scriptures are there to prove that Jesus is, is the Messiah according to prophecy and the fulfillment of those. But they're also there to help us to understand who Jesus is to really flesh out his personality, what it was he was accomplishing that was a part of a plan that's older than antiquity, that's older than creation, that's older than time itself. And in understanding Jesus in light of what is being said about him in the New Testament and what is being said about him for centuries in the Old Testament, what we do is we stand back in awe of his work of, of 33 years and how he lived and what he thought and what he accomplished and who he was and how he dealt with temptation. And, and in this, uh, this text that Bill read for us, uh, I noticed that there are, there are three Old Testament scriptures that, that help us to understand some really important things about the Christ. And what we're going to do is we're going to start at the very end of that, that passage in verse 23 and work our way backward. And one of the first things... That, that we learn about Jesus from this Old Testament passage found in verse 23 is that He works in an unexpected way. Christ works or He ministers. His mission is done in an unexpected way. Read with me beginning in verse 21 of chapter 2 of Matthew. So He got up, speaking of Joseph, He took the child and His mother and went to the land of, of Israel. But when He heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And having been warmed in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, which is the, the northern part of Israel, near, near the Sea of Galilee. And he went and he lived in a town called what? Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be what? Called, not that he's from, but that he's called a Nazarene. Not just from, but he's going to be called a Nazarene. Now, uh, stepping back just for a moment, there are a tremendous amount of similarities. Uh, in fact, as you're reading through the Gospel of Matthew during the week, uh, for the next 13 weeks, 
I, you know, I would, I would suggest, in fact, I would encourage you to get a piece of paper out to the side and every time you run across a similarity between Moses and Jesus, you write them down. You know, for instance, both of them were born at a time when lots of male children were killed. Uh, there was, uh, you know, a, a pharaoh and a king in their pride and in their fear who, 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 you know, were responsible for the demise of those children. I mean, those are examples. Uh, one of the things that is an example of Moses and Jesus' similarities is that, you know, there was a period of time when, when Moses disappeared. He went off into obscurity. In fact, you know, one of the things that happened when he went to the Midian Desert and, and got married and started a family was that he took up a, a vocation that was the opposite in terms of status, opposite in terms of prestige, anything that he had learned in the first 40 years of his life in Egypt. He became a shepherd. He became um, part of a despised profession of the Egyptians. He went into the farthest place he could find and did the most heinous thing, or I shouldn't say heinous, the most um, uh, 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 despised thing that he could think of in terms to, to be in that obscure station or that obscure situation away from Egypt. Uh, the same thing's happening with Jesus as he goes into Nazareth. And this is a really odd twist in the story. Nazareth is this small place just on the back of, backside of nowhere. And I've been to Nazareth a couple of times, and it's nothing today like it was back during the first century. Today, it's a gigantic city, a sprawling metropolis. There are cars and streets and restaurants and people all over the place. During the time of Jesus, as these archaeologists you know, uncover what ancient Nazareth was like and its boundaries and the number of people that could possibly live within you know, a square yard, maybe 500 people lived in Nazareth at the time that Jesus lived. And it's just this, this backwoods place. It's, it's a place filled with peasants. There's, there's, there are no rich individuals that are living there as far as anybody can tell. It is a place where you know, people just don't think of greatness coming out of Nazareth. In fact, over in John chapter 1, remember when Philip encounters Jesus and says, oh, this must be the Messiah. I need to go and find Nathaniel and tell him about Jesus. And what is it that Nathaniel says in verse 46? Nazareth. What's he say? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, the answer to that in the minds of a lot of Jewish people were, not really. It's like saying, you know, can anything good come out of Iowa? Uh, my, you know, no offense to anybody from Iowa here. But, or, or maybe we should say Canada. I don't know. But, you know, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That was the sentiment. Now, the fact that he is not just from Nazareth, but is going to be called, according to the fulfillment of Scripture, a Nazarene, tells us something about the way that God operates. God in Jesus is not going to operate in ways that are normally associated with, with those that are seeking prestige or status or greatness or power or any of those things. When you, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we were looking at some of the passages out of Isaiah chapter 40 through 66 that deal with this special servant that, uh, that Isaiah is describing, which you know, it was this mysterious servant in the time of Isaiah, but the New Testament tells us over and over again, it's the Christ, it's Jesus. And in chapter 42, there is this, uh, this really special passage to me that I've loved all of my life that talks about how this special servant of Jesus is not going to be someone who declares, you know, his, his, his power publicly in the street. His voice is not going to be raised to a shout or a level of declaration in the street. That is, 
He's not going to operate the way that kings during his period of time, his, his period of living, would have operated in trying to, as they do today, as a matter of fact, they try to control public discourse and what's being said about him and what's being thought about him. And every king had his herald that would prepare the way and would get the people's minds and hearts and lives and their streets right for the coming of the king. But Isaiah's special servant in Isaiah 42 is not that kind of individual. And to make it even more profoundly different, he says right after that, a, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And you think about um, the way that the powerful and the way that the prestigious and, and, and the famous and, and, and the controlling deal with life and what you'll see upon just short-term observation is that really there's not a whole lot of time for those people that are very, very weak that are like that bruised reed. That bruised reed is, uh, you know, that reed that might have been cut along a riverside that would have been formed and, and, and heated and would become a walking stick. But if it had become bruised somehow, where in fact that, that, that word in Hebrew means, to you know, the, that kind of bruising, if it was received by a human being, would lead to some kind of a hemorrhage. That kind of a reed is that, you know, if we were to lean on it, put all of our weight on it, would snap it, would break it, and because it was useless at that point, we would just toss it away. But that's not the way that Jesus op operates according to Isaiah 42, this special servant. This special servant is not going to lean on those that are bruised like that to the point that they break, nor is he going to take those that have... Um, somehow suffered in their life that, you know, that right now they're not a flame, but they're kind of the smoldering wick. And that's, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but that, that imagery always has spoken to me about irritating people. You know, people that you don't really like to be around because they don't really contribute to anything to you. They're just irritating in the sense that there's always some need that they need you to fill. There's, there's something about the way they speak, the way they talk, the way they like. It, it's just sort of irritating the way that that wick it's sort of smoldering and you, you just smell it and it irritates your eyes and irritates your nose. But there's something so special about this servant that he's not the kind of person that's just going to reject that kind of an individual. He's not going to you know, lick his fingers and just really snuff that wick out even though it's smoldering so that it gets you know, that, that, that irritating, acrid smoke out of his eyes and out of his nose. What he's going to do is the opposite. He's not going to snuff it out, but he's going to breathe life into it so that that flame might come up again. I mean, what Jesus is described as in Isaiah 42 is absolutely different from any other powerful leader, thinker in the history of the universe. In, in Isaiah chapter 40, at the, at the very beginning of the servant song, you know, again, we have this, this beautiful image of the way that Jesus is going to operate. You know, it's, you know, he's not going to be out in front having every, you know, on the cutting edge and, and having everybody try to catch up with him. And he, you know, the way he's described in Isaiah 40 is that you know, he's going to tenderly lead those who are with young. Let the young Turks you know, head out and, and speed out in front of everybody. But this one is going to hold the lambs in his arms and he's going to gently lead those who are with children. It's just a completely different image of, 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 of world 
leader, a, a powerful individual than anything that we've ever seen. I don't know about you, but I, you know, I've read the, the books on Iacocca and, and you know, read on you know, lots of, of famous individuals and powerful individuals, and all of them, 90% of the time, even though they would never say it, would abhor this kind of being, this kind of living, this kind of acting, this kind of thinking, that not conducive to greatness. But you just think about the way that God has always operated. It's Abel, not Cain. It's Isaac, not Ishmael. It's Jacob, not Esau. It's Ephraim, not Manasseh. It's that young red-headed shepherd boy out on the, the backfields of Bethlehem watching the sheep by the name of David and not his older brothers. It's God always choosing a woman who is barren or a woman who is not loved. It's, it's old Sarai over, and not Hagar. It's, it's the not-loved Leah rather than Rachel. It's the barren Manoah's wife who gives birth to Samson the judge. It's the righteous but barren Hannah that gives, uh, gives birth to Samuel. It's the righteous but barren Elizabeth who gives birth to John the Baptist. Why? Well, maybe at one level God does love the underdog. But I can't help but think that over and over and over again He's teaching us that our salvation is not going to be related to our strengths but to our weaknesses. That there is, there is no way that we are ever going to be as dependent on Him as a child as, as long as we are not humble, as long as we are prideful, as, we, as long as we are self-centered, and our self-image is that of greatness and not humility in, in, in the shadow of the Almighty. And here comes this Jesus throughout the Gospel of Matthew that just surprises people over and over and over again. It's, 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 it's John the Baptist even struggling with the kind of Messiah that Jesus is over in Matthew chapter 11. But there's, there's a, a, a second Old Testament Scripture here in verse 18 where we see that Christ is also treated in unexpected ways. Here is the most sensitive man who ever lived. And because of that, knowing like we talked about this morning that every sin is a sin against Him, feeling that sin more deeply, more profoundly, more painfully than we can ever imagine, He is, he is treated uh, horribly and shabbily in unexpected ways. Uh, look at verse, uh, we'll start with verse 16. We go back to Matthew chapter 2, and here's Herod who has talked to the, the, the Magi. And when Herod realizes that he's been outwitted by the Magi, he's furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem. Now that's an example, an extreme example of the opposite way that Jesus operated in the world. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. It's the last, uh, well, I got caught up on so much television the last couple of days. Uh, was watching one of the, uh, the news shows. And again, I, you know, I, 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 I've only been 51 time in my life, but I, I'm, I'm finding out that your memory's not as great as it used to be. I can't remember the name of the show, but it, they were going back a year later to the tsunami in Japan, 
And it was, a, a, it was heart-rendering to, to see the suffering that is still going on in that country, especially in those villages up there on the north shore on the, uh, the, the eastern side of Japan that was so horribly pounded by that tsunami and earthquake, children just disappearing, and, and the questions that the Japanese people have, and these, these women talking about, my children, they were here, and now they're gone. And, and why? And, and I, I could not help but think about you know, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. It gives you a little bit of insight into who we are. That as, as intelligent as we might be when it comes to making atomic bombs and medicines and, and uh, you know, great literature and these kinds of things, that in our pride and our hubris, our self-centeredness, our arrogance, we can perceive the Son of Man, bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. He will carry the young in his arms and gently lead those who are with, with, with young. We will see him and hate him. Jesus was hated and hunted. And there's a reason given in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. It was because he was a king. The Magi come to Herod and they say, yeah, we're looking for the one that is born king. Herod never refers to him as a king. He says, where's the child? Herod was intimidated. Herod was, 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 was enraged that there was a rival. He was fearful for his kingdom. The hardest thing for humans to get over is that we're not really in charge. We're really not in charge. Oh, we might be able to make some decisions about bills that are paid. Third thing that kind of happened um, last couple of days with my, my father was uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, his youngest brother, as you know, my father's been in poor health for, for a number of years, COPD as well as other things that are going on. Um, thought, thought that he, you know, about a year and a half ago that we were going to lose him. And about three weeks ago, uh, out to dinner with, uh, with some folks here at church when we got a phone call that his youngest brother had passed away. Healthy as a horse, vibrant, taking care of his family, uh, you know, in his mid-70s, always been healthy, never anything wrong with him, got up from watching television, started to walk around a table and dropped down dead. And, um, you know, my father, who has become one of the greatest philosophers I've ever known, you know, in struggling with why he and his poor health is still here and his youngest brother, you know, obviously whom he loved and, and was very close to, uh, in great health, unexpectedly and surprisingly would die, makes the statement, you know, just a reminder that you never know. But the one thing we do know is we're not in control. I said, Dad, I think that's really wise hardest thing for us to get over is that we're not in charge. And we all have to admit that there's, there's a little bit of Herod in all of our hearts that we have to deal with. And we pay lip service to, to, the, to, the, to the reign of Jesus. We call Him Lord and we sing about Him, but the kingdom never really gets established and rooted in our hearts and in our lives 
the way that it's meant to be. I mean, our sexuality is shaped a lot of times by what makes sense to us, and our degrees of forgiveness are limited by our own sense of justice and our own sense of pain, and our sense of humor is determined by the culture around us. And we have a Christian vocabulary, but unfortunately a lot of times we have a Herod heart. And we might never kill anybody, but we will fight the lordship of Jesus in every change that entails until the day we die. And as long as we refuse to do business with that little portion of Herod that is still in our hearts, our sanctification, our being made holy, our being made in our hearts and minds, our coming and our going, the way that we live, that all being conformed to the image of Jesus will suffer. And then the third and last thing is that Christ delivers in a very unexpected way. And this is verse 15. This is where we'll end up. Uh, We'll start in verse 14. So he got up, he took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, a lot of you, like me, have Bibles and have little footnotes and endnotes and these kinds of things in them. And, you know, as we're reading, we see the little footnote, and we say, Oh, hey, that's a quote from Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1, and then we'll go and we'll look it up and we'll see that, oh yeah, that's exactly what Hosea said. Out of Egypt I have called my son. He's probably talking about the Exodus. The problem though is that sometimes we don't read far enough into Hosea chapter 11. And when you think about the context of Hosea chapter 11, you know, Israel is in a bad way. And they have been given the promised land and they've abused the promised land and they have become self-centered. And Jeroboam II has got this grand army and they think they're a superpower and they're richer now than they've ever been before. And they, you know, they, they think that God is blessing them in such a way that, they, you know, that anything that they do, as long as they retain that, that power and that wealth, then God must be blessing them and they must be okay. Hosea goes up there and says, not quite that way. Amos does the same thing. And Hosea, at the, at, at the end of that book, begins to envision this, this, this new exodus. He says, here's going to be a period of time. You know, out of Egypt I called my son. That, that first verse deals with the, with the exodus that happens in the second book of the Old Testament. But by the time you get to the 11th verse of Hosea chapter 11, it's pretty obvious that Hosea is seeing a different and a newer and a greater exodus that's going to take place. And, and one of the things that as I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about why in the world would Matthew put this particular passage about out of Egypt I've called my son just because he was coming out of Egypt? You know, is this again just some kind of a way for us to understand that Jesus is the Christ, he's fulfilling Scripture, or is there something more profound than that? And what you begin to see is that all of the Old Testament is pointing to Christ. That all of the Old Testament is pointing to Christ. And Keener, one of the commentaries that I've been reading, says that it's this Jesus who's going to cut a new way through the wilderness to a new land of promise. And what we see that, that maybe we've never seen before quite as clearly is that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in such a way that we stand back in awe, overwhelmed by the greatness and the majesty of His being. Christ is the better Adam who passed the test in the Garden of Gethsemane. And where the first Adam's sin caused our fall, Christ's uh, righteousness 
is, 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 is imparted to us. And Christ is the better able, whose blood does not cry out for, for justice, but cries out for our acquittal. And Christ is the better Abraham, who left Ur of the Chaldees. And not just that, but, the, but the Christ, as the better Abraham, left heaven itself to create a new nation of God's holy people. And, and he's, he's the better Isaac, who was not just nearly offered up by his father, but was completely offered up. And where the first Abraham heard the words, because you have not withheld your only son, the son whom you love, now I know that you love me. We see this better Isaac in Christ who was offered up and we say, God, we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only begotten son, your unique and loved son from us. God said to Abraham, I know you love me because you didn't withhold that son. We say to God, the cross teaches us how much you love us. He's the better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow that we deserve. He is the better Joseph who is at the right hand of the king who forgives those who betrayed him and uses his new power to save those that, that he loves. He is the better Moses who meditates a better covenant. He's the better Job who is truly the most righteous man in the land who in the end saves his stupid friend. He's the better David whose victory becomes the people's victory even though they never lifted a stone. He's the better Esther who, who, who nearly forfeited an earthly palace but ultimately lost a, a, the, the heavenly palace for the sake of the people. He's the better Jonah who was tossed into the worst storm that we could imagine in order for us to be saved. He is the purest and greatest Passover lamb. He is the, you know, the, the voice of God that speaks truly the truth to us. He is the better. All of those Old Testament prophecies all point to the greatness of the fulfillment of all of those things in Him. And, and we just stand back. And we stand in awe of God's plan and God's power in impacting our lives through this man Jesus. God become flesh, the Creator becoming a creature. And in that love and in that holiness and in that majesty that was hatched as a plan before the beginning of all creation, what we understand is that everything is being made the way that it was always intended to be by God. And that all of history has been turned around and is in, for some, a collision course with God. But for others, the ultimate marriage. Uh, ben is going to lead us in a song right now. And some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. And, and maybe tonight is the night that you would like to, to give your life completely and wholly to this, this, this Christ, this Messiah, this Lamb of God, this light of the world, this bread of life, all of these different ways of understanding Jesus, they all, everything, all of it, not just in part, but all of it comes true in Him. And because it's true in Him, it blesses your life utterly and completely profoundly. If you'd like to give your life to Him tonight by being baptized and your sins being washed away, making Him the Lord of your life, or maybe tonight there's, there's some things that you're struggling with. Uh, maybe you've put some limitations on the power of God. Maybe you've put some limitations on, on, on uh, the power of Christ to change you in this life, to move your heart, to, to, to break those old habits, to fulfill those needs, and to not look for those needs to be met anywhere else but in, but in this Jesus. Well, the church can pray for you tonight and minister to you. Our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. If there's any need at all tonight, make it known to these shepherds as we stand and sing together.